grateful for your presence tonight. We have a couple of visitors, and we are grateful for your presence uh, here tonight as well. As of late, I have found myself uh, spending time in the Psalms, and I think that's a good thing uh, because there there is so much that uh, David in particular has written about uh, the the difficulty, the adversity, uh, the the way that society is so often not in alignment with the will of God that it was discouraging to David, and he often found solace in the psalms are that he wrote and in prayer and petition to God for guidance and reassurance. And so in many respects today, when we find ourselves in similar situations where we look out at society and we might think, how much worse can it get? How much more might God take of this? Uh, how do we cope? How do we deal with what we face in the news and at work and in society in general on a daily basis? There's a lot of value in going back to the thoughts that David contemplated by inspiration and drawing strength and reassurance from those. And so tonight, I invite our attention to Psalm 11, seven verses that uh, at least it seems to me provide a great measure of reassurance for us uh, as we face circumstances that are, are uncertain. As you turn there in your Bible, I would put before us the question that uh, really is the, the crux of our study tonight. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You know, there, there's a lot to be said about the importance of a foundation. I've spoken before about some of the older houses in the Roanoke area that haven't yet been torn down and replaced with million-dollar homes. You can see a lot of foundation issues. You can see about halfway through the house where something happened with the foundation and it it gets a little crooked. It's it's off kilter. You can tell just by looking that something something is not right. And, you know, even with our house, we've had the foundation checked before because of shifting and things. Because if, if there's a foundation problem, that's, that's a serious concern. But when you think about society, the environment where we have to live in our pilgrimage, our temporary sojourn on this earth. What about the foundations of society? Because those on a much larger scale impact us from day to day. And if those foundations are destroyed, now they're tinkered with every day, and they're shifted and they're adjusted, and it seems they're ever more on the verge of being destroyed, what can the righteous do if that happens? I expect that your experience is much like mine. We often feel like we're watching the house burn with absolutely no ability to extinguish the spread 
of the bad things that seem to be happening. Psalm 11 contains this question. This question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, it just seems appropriate to me, rather than guessing and speculating about what the righteous are supposed to do, it seems more appropriate to actually go to the place where the question is asked and see if there's any contextual insight provided as an answer to that. And that's what I would like to do tonight. Before we actually get into the text, I want to first, just, just a few points of observation here. The first one is this. What are some foundations that are being destroyed? I don't see anybody scratching their head asking the question, what is he talking about? I don't think anybody here lives in a vacuum and is not affected by so many of what we would consider foundational aspects of our society and our culture. But, but just to kind of get them out on the table tonight, what are some of those that seem to be of so much concern? And they change. I, I have, this is not the first time I've preached from this passage, even here. It's been a long time, but I went back and looked at that, and even some of the things that I mentioned as foundational in that sermon were different than the ones that I'm pointing out tonight. But what, what are the foundations? What are some examples of foundational things that have our concern uh, tonight? And why are these things so important? I think a good segue to that is a reminder of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, where he talks about the wise man and the foolish man. And even from childhood, maybe even in cradle rule, we start teaching our children about foundations. A wise man built his house upon a rock. A foolish man built his house upon the sand. Why, why is that even important because the foundation determines the longevity of the structure built upon it. And if you build on sand, then you can expect when it, that structure and by connection, the foundation is tried, it's going to be demolished, just as Jesus says. But if the house is built on a rock, then the structure and the attached foundation should stand firm because wisdom was put into the foundational building of, of that place. Now, what does all of that have to do with Bible? What does it have to do with what we're talking about tonight? Well, Jesus says in the context of that metaphoric analogy, whoever hears these sayings of mine, I will liken unto a wise man. And by contrast, well, that's the man that built his house on the rock, but by contrast, the man who built his house on the sand is the one who doesn't listen, who doesn't hear the sayings of Jesus. So we could say right out of the gate before we even put forth some examples of foundations, we can say that foundations are doomed to failure if God is banished from them. 
And so in society, when God is banished from the foundations, you can expect it to crumble. You can expect it to fall and to be destroyed. Now, where are some areas where we have seen that? Well, what about the foundations of our origins? Where, where we came from? Why, why is that so important? I mean, if this people over here in this pocket want to believe that they evolved from a lower form of life and that that happened by accident, you know, what, what's the damage of that? I'll tell you the damage of it is because every decision that's made relative to humanity is affected by what we believe about our origins, where we came from. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible begins with that foundational fact. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's foundational to every other decision that is made by humanity. If you don't believe that God exists and that God created the world, then you have no problem taking innocent life from the womb and I'll tell you, society can get so depraved that a, a group of people making decisions in some office somewhere could, could eventually get to the point where they look at a community and say, there are too many people living here. We need to cut down on the number of people. Or as some countries do, we're going to limit the number of children you, you can have. Because they feel like they're God and they're in control and they should make these decisions because after all there is, there is no God. But Psalm 14 and verse one says, the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. And any society that is built based upon the premise that there is no God is a foolish society. And although we and our nation began with at least an understanding that there is a God and that God created this world and that we're responsible to him, you can backtrack on that. And we are. We're backtracking on that fundamental foundational belief and it's evident in our society. So that is foundational, our origin, where we came from and where we created by an almighty God, yes or no? If you say yes, then you're on track to have a good foundation for society. If you say no, then really anything goes because there's no one responsible for our origin other than fate. And who can regulate fate? Another one is... It probably even more, I say probably, but definitely even more prevalent in our time. Uh, Caleb's talked some about this in recent, in ser recent sermons, and it's been mentioned here and there. But when you take God out of the foundation, when you're unclear about the fact that you were created by God and that he had an order for his creation, you get to a place for instance, with gender identity, you know, our gender fluidity, and that, you know, who's to say whether there's just two 
Because after all, there's no God. We weren't created. And so we're just a product of evolution and fate and what happens. And how can you be so dogmatic as to say they're, they're just two? You see that when you take God out of the foundation, anything goes and we're just driving aimlessly through life as a society. And with respect to gender, we forget or we ignore passages like Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 that God made them male and female. And you just walk your way through the Bible and what you see is male and female, male and female, male and female. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, even passages that aren't specifically talking about gender mention gender, and guess what? It's just male or female. With respect to the salvation offered in Christ Jesus, there's neither uh, male nor female, slave uh, nor free, Jew, Gentile. You have all of these different distinctions, but even in a passage like that, it's male and female. And so even when the Bible is not trying to make a gender limitation argument, it does because it just makes sense that there are only two. How do we get to a place where we don't even know what gender we are? Because we build a society without God. And he's not in the foundation or we backtrack to the point where we've removed him. That's how we get to a place like this. Not necessarily that being an atheist makes you gender confused, but being an atheist destroys all the foundations that God has placed within the realm of our possibility and the home is messed up. Relationships between parents and children are messed up. People are abused. People are mistreated. They, they are confused in many respects because of the way society is when you take God out of it. And so it should be no surprise that we have situations where people aren't even sure if they're male or female, at least as they profess. And what about marriage? Another foundation, you know, in recent years, we've removed God's design for marriage from the foundation of our society. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, where Adam recounts that a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they become one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. God joins a man and a woman. That's foundational. And it just makes sense unless you pull God out of the foundation, which society is really trying to do today. If you think about passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul says, Now concerning the things uh, whereunto you wrote me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let each man have his own wife, and each wife have her own husband. Husband and wife, wife, husband. It's foundational. The Bible knows nothing other than that. But even common sense tells you this. It's amazing to me 
that people have argued for years that we just evolved and we, we grow better and better. Survival of the fittest, the advancement of, of life through this cycle of evolution and things are supposed to get better as we evolve. And yet now as a society, we are evolving to a place where procreation is not part of it. You see what I'm saying? It takes male and female, a man and a woman to procreate and to continue life. And yet we're getting to a place in our society where we say we're evolving to a place where we're going to become extinct. Because men are going to marry men, women are going to marry women. Do you know why there was a recent push to call women baby makers or whatever it was? Baby makers? Baby factories? Why? Because in a male-male relationship or a female-female relationship, you can't have babies. So you need some baby makers to provide babies to those relationships that can't make babies. How, how do you get to a place like that? You take God out of the foundation. Evolution just makes no sense. We're going to evolve to extinction, as I've already made the point. And so marriage is foundational. Morality is foundational to the success and the survival of a society. In Exodus chapter 20, God gave the Israelite nation the Ten Commandments, which was a structure of a moral framework for a society so that they could thrive. Their relationship to God, their relationship to one another was manifest in this framework because that's essential for a society to last. In Matthew 22, Jesus, Jesus gives the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. Moral relationship, moral framework for man's relationship to God and his relationship to humanity. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. Again, Properties of moral character and conduct in a biblical framework that are foundational to our existence. And yet these are just some examples of things that crumble when you take God out of the foundation. And so having said all of that, what does Psalm 11 offer us as we think about if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The first thing I want us to know, this is our second point, but the first thing actually from Psalm 11, starting in verse 1, is this. Godless people, and that's what we're talking about, framework demol uh, foundation demolishers are godless people. We'll just get that out there so there's no confusion about that. Godless people thrive in the absence of godly people. When godly people retreat from their duty and responsibility, that is fertile ground for godless people and the cause that they want to promote. 
And so the psalmist begins, David begins in verse 1, he says, in the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? You know, that's, that's the message from the ungodly in our world to people who want to promote godliness in Christianity. You flee as a bird to your mountain. In other words, you get out of here. You don't have a voice. You don't have a place here. Go hide in the mountains. That's what they want. And so David says, how, how can you say that to me? Instead, David says, I trust God. Why would I flee to the mountain? Why would I run in fear of you and hide when I trust in God? There are a number of passages that remind us of this reality, the fact that we trust in God and that we're not to cower and run from the threats that people level against us. The psalmist said in Psalm 27 and verse 1, The Lord is my delight and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my strength, the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Are, are, are we afraid? Are, are we on the verge of fleeing to our mountain to hide anytime someone makes a threat against us? Or when we try to speak out and they push us down and try to suppress what we say, do we feel tempted to run and hide? Psalm 28 and verse 1, To you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. Do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. You're my rock. I trust in you. Psalm 37, or, or let me back up a minute. Think about Peter and the apostles. When they, when they were told, flee to your mountain. They didn't, it wasn't said that way, but it was stop teaching in his name. It's the same thing. And they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Why, why would I stop teaching about Jesus Christ? Why would I flee to a mountain? I trust in God. Verse 2. For look, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot, look at this, secretly at the upright in heart. Secretly. You know, they, they don't come out and say, we think Christianity is flawed, we think God-fearing God people are foolish, they, they, don't, they don't attack directly. What do they do? They know the foundations. They know that speaking what God has speak, spoken builds up strong foundations. So if they can undermine the foundations, then without shooting directly at us, they can accomplish the same thing. And so why do they attack origins? Why do they 
promote gender confusion? Why do they destroy marriage? Why do they corrupt morality? They're secret arrows aimed at God to, to, to try to destroy his influence in this world. Psalm 37 and verse 12 says, The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. They know what they're doing. The psalmist said in Psalm 64, verses 2 through 4, Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity, who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, bitter words, that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They don't, they don't come in and try to lock our doors and keep us from worshiping on Sunday. They don't try to burn all the Bibles in the United States. It's not a direct attack. It's an indirect one where they say to us, flee to your mountain. And then they work to undermine the foundations. A direct attack would be too obvious and quite frankly, unnecessary. Perhaps they're successful because so many times we do the very thing that they tell us to do. We escape the conflict by fleeing to the mountain. The very thing David said they challenged him to do, and he said, why? Why would I do that? I trust in God. Let's notice the third point. Beginning in verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The question supposes a counter response from the righteous, doesn't it? If the foundations are destroyed, what can what can the righteous do? What is the counter response that the righteous can make if this is the case? The text doesn't say take up arms and fight. It just doesn't do that. In fact, on one occasion, one of Jesus' inner circle tried to do that. Matthew 26, verses 51 through 54. Peter and he was rebuked for trying to take that route. But it doesn't say comply with their demand that you flee to the mountain because that would be a violation of God's will. But so often we do that to mitigate the threat. We don't want them closing our doors. We don't want them burning Bibles, so maybe it's best to just back off. In other words, flee to the mountain. But David would say, why would I do that? And it would be good for us to get into that same mindset. The mindset that he began this psalm with, in the Lord I put my trust. The answer is not at all what one might expect as a response. What shall the righteous do? I could think of some things. I could go get my guns. 
I could flee to the mountain. But the answer here is not either of those. What, what did David say? He's told us to trust God. But, but what evidence is there in this passage that helps me to do that? What, what, what evidence does he provide that helps me to trust God in situations like this? Well, notice what he says in verse 4. God is in his holy temple. There are several things that that doesn't say. It doesn't say God is hiding because he's scared to. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that God is in his battle array, which there are passages where you can see that is God's evident response to the behavior of humanity. His heavenly host is set in battle array and ready, but that's not what it says here. God's in his holy temple. And just thinking about what that might mean, I was reminded of the passage where Jesus is on a boat in the Sea of Galilee and the waves are tumultuous and disciples think the ship is about to sink and they're perplexed that Jesus is asleep. And they're thinking, why is he asleep? The boat is in danger. Jesus was asleep and the boat was not in danger. So what if here David is trying to remind us that even as bad as it looks, you and I, in our effort to trust God, need not forget that God is in his holy temple. He's, he hasn't run. He, he's not hiding. He's not on the, the edges of heaven ready to come down and to stop the efforts of these individuals. And maybe their threat, though it seems great to us, does not seem that great to God. It's wrong, but are they about to overthrow God's cause? Maybe not. But he adds to that. God's throne is in heaven. Why can't I trust? His throne's not in Washington. It's not here. It's, it's in heaven. And from that throne, his eyes are doing two things. Notice the passage says, verse 4, his eyes behold and his eyelids test the sons of, of men. Another way, to so there's beholding, seeing, but then there's this idea of testing. Maybe a better word for our understanding would be the word scrutinize. You can see, but there are times when you focus in and maybe maybe your, your eyelids work to allow you to scrutinize on a particular aspect of what you're looking at. And so David says, God's in his holy temple. His throne is in heaven. His eyes see everything that's taking place and God's scrutinizing it. He sees it. He knows it. He knows what the end result of it is. 
And David says, based upon that, I trust God. You know, maybe for a little child that sees something or is concerned about something, they, they rush to their parent and say, Mama, Daddy, come look, because they're afraid Mama or Daddy might be missing it. And our inclination sometimes in what we see in the world is, maybe God's missing this. But He's not. His eyes behold and His eyelids scrutinize or they test. But there's an interesting statement also coupled with this in verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous. He tests the righteous. Here's the test. When you look out at the world and you see all that the ungodly and wicked are doing, what are you inclined to do? Are you inclined to stand your ground? And say, I trust God. Are you inclined to flee to the mountain when they tell you to do that? Here's a test. How do I respond to what I see in the world? Do I zip my lip and not say anything for fear of retaliation? Do I flee to the mountain to hide from the threat? Or do I ask like David, why should I flee? I trust God. The righteous are put to test. There are a number of passages very quickly here. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 3. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. Psalm 66 and verse 10. For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But I might think in my mind, well, if I don't flee from the threat, they're going to come at me harder and if I speak up and bring persecution upon myself, then that's going to destroy me and the church. But might I just remind us of Acts chapter 8. On the heels of the stoning of Stephen, there arose a great persecution against the church. And the Bible says those who were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Maybe the test when we see the foundations being demolished is not so much about the foundations. Maybe the test is about us and whether we're going to be like David when they say, flee to your mountain. Are we going to say, why? Why should I do that? I trust God. The God who's in His holy temple, whose throne is in heaven, and who sees everything you're doing and he's scrutinizing every bit of it. And I know he's testing me too to see how I'm going to respond. Let's notice very quickly in the last place, the latter part of verse five, the one who loves violence, his soul hates. God hates the one whose soul loves violence. Verse six, Upon the wicked, 
He will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. And so notice in the last place, what will God do with those who destroy foundations? Well, they don't go unnoticed. We've already seen that. And they will not go unpunished. Maybe not on my timeline, but God has promised and David is reassured that they will get their just due. And for the benefit of our faith and for strengthening our resolve to trust God, let's just ask the question, has he ever done that? Caleb got dangerously close to my list this morning and even overlapped with me. But think about sometimes when God has shown this, the world in its global corruption in Genesis chapter 6 through 9, did God give them their just due? Yes, he did. Sodom and Gomorrah as a threat to righteousness, Genesis chapter 18 and 19. Yes, indeed. The Egyptians in their power and might over God's people, at least they thought, no. Exodus chapter 14, God handled that. The rebellious nations of Israel and Judah, 2 Kings 17, 2 Kings 24, did God just let them idly get away with their iniquity? No. And so God has demonstrated the reality of his promise to deal out the punishment that is due. And then verse 7 David finishes up with this For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. You and I must remember that where we stand with God, where we stand with God when we just put our trust and faith in Him. Now, what does that mean? It does not mean that we hide in the shadows or that we sit on our laurels. It doesn't mean that at all. We have a Bible full of admonishment regarding what we must do. We have a great commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, that we're to take the gospel to people. We have Jesus' admonishment in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16 to let our light shine, which Caleb adequately pointed out this morning that is not our light, it's God's light. And so we have a choice. We can either flee to the mountain and let nothing be said, or we can live our godly, righteous life in this world and say, why should I flee to the mountain? I trust God. And I'm going to do right here and now, and as long as I have life in my body, what he expects me to do, because he's testing me to see if I will. I'm going to represent righteousness while you work at destroying foundations. The world's problem is not evil's leavening cancerous growth in a society. The world's problem is the existence of sin and the lostness of humanity. That's its problem. The solution is the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And might we, in our reflection on what David has said, find the courage not to give in to the demand that we flee to the mountain and shut our mouths. Might we rather say as David did, why should I do that? 
I stand on firm, solid, sure foundation in proclamation of the gospel with my mouth and with my life. And if you don't want that, God sees everything and he's scrutinizing everything and he will deal with it on his timetable. And God help us to have the kind of courage and trust that David demonstrates for us in this psalm. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, why not step out on faith and obey the gospel tonight? Believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, willing to repent of your sins, to confess your faith in Christ, and to be baptized in water, to have your sins washed away. Maybe as a child of God here tonight, you have some other need. We're going to sing a song to encourage. We hope you'll come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this recorded audio of a sermon that was preached at the Roanoke Church of Christ. If you'd like to visit us, you can do so at 608 Dallas Drive, Roanoke, Texas, 76262. Or you can visit our website at roanokechurchofchrist.org. We hope to see you soon, and may God bless you.